So in that sense, if you have information that the government was actually talking about how much money they could save with this, and we have a president who's actively encouraging people not to wear masks even now, telling people that any kind of vaccine could be dangerous, that women could grow beards if they take vaccines, and then filming himself in crowds with no mask on, telling people to take quackish medications that, like the context which he used to explain to, to push chloroquine was that you don't have to wear a mask. You don't have to worry about social isolation. Just go about your normal life and take chloroquine. If you get sick, it will cure your COVID-19. So if you add all of those things up, I think, yeah, he can be accused of uh, genocide for this. Definitely. Hey folks, thank you so much for tuning in. In this episode, I speak with Brian Muir. Brian is a co-editor at Brazil Wire. He is a correspondent for Telesur English, and this is his third time on the podcast. There is a lot that has happened since I spoke to Brian. I think when I spoke to him last, the coronavirus pandemic was really beginning to rear its ugly head. As I mentioned in this interview at the beginning, I was in Brazil for two months I came back in mid-early February last year, and that was right when the virus was really beginning to be discussed more openly and the idea of a lockdown occurring, uh, travel restrictions and so on, that was just beginning to be discussed. I think right as I was leaving Brazil, coming back to the United States, there was this feeling in the air that something big was about to happen. I think a lot of people who pay attention to the news, that pay attention to current events, can remember hearing about this novel coronavirus coming out of Wuhan, not really sure what to make of it quite yet, how the impacts were going to play out on the global scale. Of course, we all now know how that was going to play out. In the U.S. in particular, we've seen over half a million people die from this novel coronavirus from getting the COVID-19 disease. And we have seen in Brazil, being a very large country geographically, over 200 million people live in the country of Brazil, so it's about 100 million or so, give or take, uh, less people in that country than the United States. But their per capita rate of infection and death is, I think, at this point, higher than what it was even in the United States at its worst. I could be wrong in saying that, but it's at that level, at least. Uh, right now, Brazil is having the worst of it. It is really horrifying to really take in what Brian shares in this interview about how bad it really is as far as, because the, the issue is, of course, the virus is spreading and there's all these variants, these mutations of the virus that are spreading. The response by Bolsonaro, the president, the far-right president of Brazil, has been to say negligent is to kind of downplay it slightly. It's not just negligence. It seems even outrightly purposeful. There seems to be not just incompetence on his behalf, which isn't surprising. If you know anything about far-right presidents such as Jair Bolsonaro, who has similarities to Donald Trump here in the U.S., it's not just incompetency. It seems that Bolsonaro and his administration, those within his administration, are actively 
I mean, it, it seems, and this is what Brian says. I asked this really important question in this interview. I've been seeing Brazilian activists, people in Brazil highlighting and calling out Bolsonaro for being someone who is engaging in genocide. Now, he's been engaging in genocide towards indigenous people. Before the coronavirus even hit Brazil, there was already indications that Bolsonaro has a nostalgia, a longing for the military dictatorship that existed in Brazil for about 20 years from the mid-60s to the mid-80s. He also dedicated his impeachment of former President Dilma Rousseff to the military personnel, the individual that presided over her torture during that time. So this is a fascist. He is a proto or just straight up fascist or neo-fascist president. So when it comes to this pandemic in particular, Bolsonaro has done a lot of what Trump did when this thing started, which is just deny its severity, not really work with governors in the states around the country, similar to the U.S. where We have governors of states that had to do their own work to prepare for the virus, the pandemic, and its spread. No real national federal response or organization. And the same thing is kind of happening in Brazil. I don't want to stretch the comparisons too far, but there is very strong parallels here that, that need to be observed. So it seems that Jair Bolsonaro and Brian agrees with this idea that he is basically engaging in not just genocide towards indigenous people, which I referenced earlier, which has been going on for 500 years, but also engaging in a wider genocide against the wider population of Brazil. That is a bold statement, and that is a big thing to claim, but it seems that that is what he's doing. We discuss that reality in Brazil. We also discuss how Jair Bolsonaro, uh, his family, his son Eduardo, is a lawmaker in Brazil currently, and that he apparently went to Washington, D.C. and was a part of what was what has been called the War Council, uh, which happened on January 5th in Washington, D.C., the day before January 6th, in which there was, of course, we all know, the Capitol siege that occurred. So I want to actually read, just to give you an idea of what the situation is involving Eduardo Bolsonaro in this War Council visit. I'm going to quote an article that Brian published on March 11th titled, Eduardo Bolsonaro War Council Visit Triggers Investigation. And he states, a Brazilian Senate inquiry has just been filed demanding clarification from Foreign Relations Minister Ernesto Arujo on what role, if any, the federal government played in Eduardo Bolsonaro's participation in a January 5th meeting in Washington, D.C. The meeting, which is being referred to in the U.S. media as a war council, was allegedly held to plan the January 6th invasion of the U.S. Capitol and was attended by Donald Trump's sons, Rudolph Giuliani, Mike Liddell, Sidney Powell, and other key players in allies of the Trump administration. U.S. journalist Seth Abrams' February allegations published in a series of articles on Substack that Eduardo Bolsonaro attended the meeting during a surprise visit to the United States in which he also met with Ivanka Trump and Bolsonaro family guru astrologer Alavo G. Carvalho, had major repercussions in the Brazilian media. After all, if the allegations are correct, a federal congressman, who is also son of the sitting president, participated in a planning meeting that was held to try to overthrow a foreign government. So that is important. Uh, that's a big deal. And also something that is discussed is the fact that former president Lula da Silva, who was a very popular president and still a very popular political figure in Brazil, who was thrown in prison over a year ago 
for his alleged involvement in this whole corruption scandal under Duma Rousseff uh, back in 2016, and she was impeached and then thrown out of office. A part of this Lava Jato investigation, which, as it was revealed not too long ago, was deeply connected to the U.S. Department of Justice and the FBI, uh, which is what Brian has described as a lawfare coup. Uh, in which the U.S., in particular the U.S., engages in a coup attempt or a successful coup by using the legal structures of other countries to prosecute and target certain political parties and political figures in order to prevent them from having political power. This happened in Brazil. Now, Lula, at this point, was working to run for president again as a way to ameliorate some of the potential consequences of this impeachment and ousting of Dumo Rousseff. He was then targeted by this investigation, and then there was all of these really, honestly, quite bullshit allegations and charges against him, and they were able to throw him in prison, in which then there was a whole series of leaks that exposed the corruption within the investigation. He then was released from prison, and now all of his charges against him in this investigation have been dropped by a Supreme Court judge. And so that means he can run for president in 2022 against, I assume, Jair Bolsonaro. And this is a big deal. And I am referencing, of course, this visit by Eduardo Bolsonaro to the War Council meeting in D.C. in that something we get into the very end of this interview, I asked Brian his concerns about something like what happened on January 6th in the U.S. happening in Brazil. It is not outside the realm of possibility that Jair Bolsonaro will attempt something like this. And one of the major concerns that Brian has is that unlike Trump, Bolsonaro does have a good amount of support from the Brazilian military. And if you want to pull off a successful coup, you definitely need the military on your side. So those are the themes. Those are the topics of discussion in this uh, episode with Brian Muir. I care very much about Brazil and the people of Brazil and what is happening there, and uh, I will continue to revisit this uh, topic as far as just keeping track of Brazil and Brazilian politics. I also just want to state that Brian co-produced a really excellent documentary that was released by Redfish. The title of that is Dismantling Brazil, Bolsonaro's Neoliberal Agenda. It is free. You can watch it on YouTube. It's only like 30 minutes about, a little under 30 minutes long. It's very good. I would really recommend that people check it out. It's very well done. So I'll be providing a link to that. I will also be providing a link to Brazil Wire, brazilwire.com. And Brazil is spelled with an S, not a Z. So brazilwire.com. You could find his work there. Also, you can follow him through Telesur English. You can uh, also support Brian through his Patreon page at patreon.com slash Brian Mir, Brian, B-R-I-A-N, Mir, M-I-E-R. So go support his work there. He's doing good stuff. And if you would like to learn more about my work specifically, you can go to my website, lastborninthewilderness.com. Everything you need to know will be there. If you would like to support my work monetarily, you can do that by throwing a donation my way through PayPal or Venmo. Go to paypal.me slash lastbornpodcast. Or you can find me on Venmo at Lastborn Podcast. If you would like to support my work on a regular basis, a monthly or yearly basis, you can do that through my Patreon page at patreon.com slash lastborninthewilderness. And to everybody that does support my work, thank you so much. 
Uh, your, your contributions are really carrying me uh, financially right now. So thank you very much for your support. And to everyone else who just subscribes to this podcast, who listens, who shares their thoughts with me, thank you. I really appreciate everything that you have shared with me as far as how this work is impacting you. All right, everyone, that's all I got. Thank you so much for your attention. Uh, Without any further delay, here is my interview with Brian Muir. Anyway, Brian, it's good to see you. Thanks for coming on the podcast again. This is your third time, I believe, that you've been on. Thanks Um, for having me. Yeah, yeah. And I think the first time, or sorry, the last time we spoke, I I think I just got back to the U.S. um, when I was in Brazil, and um, the pandemic was in full swing at that point. Um. And, uh, I think I remember like one of the last things you said as we got off the the call with each other was like talking about the Trump supporters being like the zombie hordes or something. And you mentioned that it was just, (laughs) and I haven't, I've had that in my mind ever since, especially with what happened on January 6th, it was like watching a bunch of brainwashed zombies storm the Capitol and, even though I know there were people that planned it and were like they're a little more aware of what they were actually doing. I feel like a lot of people have been so like, I want to say brainwashed, but like there's this quality of, of propaganda and just years and years of this shit being fed to these people and these, these fears that they've had and all these conspiracy theories that they've been wrapped up in for so long. And, uh, Trump being, as good as he has been, uh, if there's one thing he's very good at is he has a pulse on the culture, you could say, or the direction that people are going in, um, planted the seed months and months ago that this could be a fraudulent election if he loses and just, you know, fomented something like a, a coup attempt, uh, I think at least on January 6th. And I kept on thinking about the parallels over, over the years and from our conversations of, what Trump has been able to pull off in the U.S. and what Jair Bolsonaro has been able to do as well in Brazil. Um, well, you know, Jair base. Bolsonaro's son was in that war council meeting on January 5th in Washington. Yeah. So the, yeah, the and two, I wanted to ask you, know, you about they're that. Connected. That's just yeah. connected. And Bolsonaro has been saying that he doesn't think the next election is going to be legitimate, that there's going to be fraud. He's already been announcing that. So is Bolsonaro just echoing or or just kind of doing exactly like is he following kind of a playbook from Trump or is this from, something I else? Think I think Bannon. it's from Bannon. Bannon. Steve okay. Bannon is in constant contact with uh, the Bolsonaro's sons, especially Eduardo. And could you talk about Eduardo a bit? Like who is he? He's exactly? a congressman and uh, you know like all of Bolsonaro's sons he's under federal police investigation for like money laundering and association with armed militias. He's and he's a far right wing uh-huh. guy. He's, he's considered to be the main conduit between Steve Bannon and the Bols- and Jair Bolsonaro and um they tried to make him ambassador to the US. Uh, mm-hmm. at one point uh, Bolsonaro did the father but it was just like attacked from all sides as nepotism sure you know um and also just that he was totally unqualified for the job even sure even though maybe you could say he is if he's a conspiracy theorist trump fanatic maybe he would have been the right ambassador from bolsonaro's perspective because he's a 
Yeah. Flat earther and everything. <laughs> He's a flat earther? I think so. Well, I'm exaggerating <laughs> a little. Bolsonaro himself, the president, has said some things to the effect of the earth might be flat. And so oh <laughs> when Lula had his political rights restored last week, he gave this historic like three-hour press conference. And in it, he said, unlike our president, I believe the earth is round. And he used this to launch into an attack on anti-science and Bolsonaro's, you know, telling people not to wear masks and things like that. And so that night, Bolsonaro did a Facebook Live and he was like visibly nervous. He was shaking. I mean, it's helping. Really? So, and he had a globe on the desk to kind of show that he believed the earth is, is round. <laughs> and then he fired his health minister a couple of days later. So Lula's already having an effect on things down here. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So there's, I, I was just thinking as I was getting ready for this interview, um, there's just so much, there, there's so much that's happened in Brazilian politics just since we spoke last. Yeah. I mean, I was trying to think of like even where to begin. And I, I watched uh, the documentary that you helped. Um, I think you, I want to know exactly. That one yeah, you co-produced Redfish with yes, with me and yeah, Michael dismantling Fox. Brazil. Yeah, yeah, dismantling Brazil, Bolsonaro's neoliberal agenda, and I watched that. It's a half an hour long doc, and it's very, very good, and it's on YouTube. People can watch it. Very well done, and so uh, great job with that. Um, yeah, there's just a lot I wanted to cover because everything from you know Bolsonaro's response to the pandemic, um, as we mentioned with Eduardo. Uh, uh, Bolsonaro's visit to Washington, D.C. on January 5th, right before the uh, Capitol Hill siege, um, the Lava Jato investigation, Lula, like there's just so many things that we can talk about. But I guess maybe where I want to begin, and this is addressed in that documentary you co-produced, is uh, Bolsonaro's response, if you want to call it that, to the pandemic. Um, and I want to ask, like, what we think Trump was very negligent during the pandemic, uh, during his time, and it's true. Um, how would you compare Bolsonaro and his response to uh, well, the virus in Brazil? Bolsonaro has um, based his response on Trump and Boris Johnson. You know, so like mm. there's a time when the international media was making him out to be this huge boogie coronavirus boogeyman. Uh, when all he was doing was just repeating things Donald Trump was saying. And so, for you know, for the first six months, he was just literally repeating everything Donald Trump said. Then he was t using Boris Johnson's term about herd immunity, which is ridiculous, you know, especially since I now know people who've got COVID-19 twice, personally, mm -hmm. you know, so there is no herd immunity, really. Yeah. And he was saying, you know, all of the stuff... Um, Trump was saying like, oh, it's just a little, it's just the flu. It's just the flu. So he said, oh, it's just a little cold. Uh, yeah. And so it started like that, except now Trump's gone. And oh, and this stuff with chloroquine too. So like when the FDA banned hydroxychloroquine for treating COVID-19 in the US, Trump apparently had invested in it or something. And so he dumped 2 million doses of it on the Brazilian government. And then the Bolsonaro did, it's under investigation now. It appears they did some kind of illegal procurement with the army to produce another couple million doses of chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine. Mm. And he started doing like commercials for hydroxychloroquine. He started saying 
coming on Facebook Live all the time, which is how he communicates with most of his supporters, like holding up a box of hydroxychloroquine. Then he said he got uh, COVID-19. We don't even really know if he did or not, but he was saying, look, I have it, but I've been taking hydroxychloroquine. I feel great. You know, it's working. This works. And, um, Mm. you know, it doesn't work. So there's all kinds of people who've died now taking it in Brazil. And... um, and so uh, then his, okay, so he's been through a bunch of different health ministers, right? His first two health ministers resigned because they refused to endorse hydroxychloroquine. Mm-hmm. And they were both doctors, you know? So finally he hired this, uh, he appointed this military general, Eduardo Pazuelo, who's not a doctor, who has no experience in public health. And he helped develop this app for cell phones, that would help people know when they were supposed to take start taking hydroxychloroquine, which is now like he's now being criminally tried for this, you know, because it's a, like it's a medicine that wasn't approved by the Brazilian Health Department for treatment of COVID-19. And so what happened is like, so Trump's gone now, but Bolsonaro yeah. is like more stubborn than ever. Like just last night, he was making fun of people with COVID-19 on his Facebook Live, like making fake gasping noises and stuff and calling them wimps. And so he's just like, he's just gone off. Like since Trump lost re-election, he's gotten worse. And we're in this Mm -hmm. situation now where, oh, he's just issued a executive order today, a decree uh, banning state and local governments from giving out lockdown orders which I think is going to be overthrown in the Supreme Court, but that just shows you where his mind is at, at a point where by far we're having the most deaths ever in COVID-19 right now in Brazil. Like at the height of the first wave, there were a few days when it was like 1,400 deaths, 1,500 deaths. Then it dropped down to around 500 a day for several months. Now it's it's hit 3,000 2,800, 3,000, 3,200. And, uh, you know, Brazil has two-thirds of the population of the U.S. So 3,000 here would be like 43, 4,400 in the U.S. or something. I mean, I'm not a mathematical genius, obviously, but... (laughs) Yeah, yeah, sure. Something like that. (laughs) Something like that. (laughs) Okay. I mean, how much of this... So there's... I, I think negligence... It's kind of like this thing where not doing something can be just a form of violence. It's like you de- when you make when you decide not to do something that isn't in and of itself a decision. But something I'm seeing a lot from uh, various Brazilian activists I follow is they're sharing things. They're like Bolsonaro is committing genocide right now. Yeah, I mean, is that a fair characterization of what he's doing? I was reluctant to use the word genocide for a while because just out of like respect for peoples who've suffered like real serious sure. genocides because Brazil has 220, 230 million people, 500,000 people have died, uh, 300, 285,000, sorry, 500,000 is the U S. Um, however, I guess if you look at the, the meaning of the concept of genocide, um, targeting a, a specific group population group, we know Bolsonaro is committing, encouraging genocide against various indigenous tribes in the Amazon, like the Yanomami, for example. 
mm. um, by inviting loggers and ranchers and miners into the reservations and asking them to burn, telling them they won't be punished if they burn down the forest. We know that's been going on. I mean, he's on trial for genocide already in the International Criminal Court. But, reg you know, regarding this uh, accusations of genocide in Brazil against him for his COVID response, I'm beginning to agree with the people who are accusing him of this. Because, first of all, like yesterday, the MST, the Landless Rural Workers Movement, which is the largest social movement in Latin America, they have like 2 million members and they, they homestead is what they do mainly. But um, they, they published some numbers that like 70% of Brazil's COVID-19 deaths, around 210,000 people, were people over 60. So the MST has calculated that the Bolsonaro government is now saving 231 million reais a month in pension payments, which are, you know, the equivalent of Brazilian equivalent of social security payments, 231 million rise a month. Now, if you look at that, and then you go back last year, there was a meeting held in which one of the advisors to um, Brazil's uh, minister of the economy, Paulo Guedes, who is an original Chicago boy, he studied under Milton Friedman in the 70s and then lived in Chile under Pinochet for 10 years. One of his advisors is talking about how much money they would save if COVID killed a large percent of the elderly population, how much money they'd save on pension payments. So, I mean, 231 million reais a month, that's around, you know, $40 million a month because the exchange rate has plummeted since Bolsonaro took office too. Um, but still, that's like... That comes out to a lot of money, and the the death count is going up very quickly, and it is hitting mostly elderly people. So, so in that sense, if you have information that the government was actually talking about how much money they could save with this, and we have a president who's actively encouraging people not to wear masks even now, telling people that any kind of vaccine could be dangerous that women could grow beards if they take vaccines, and then filming himself in crowds with no mask on, telling people to take quackish medications. That, like The context which he used to explain, to, to push chloroquine, was that you don't have to wear a mask. You don't have to worry about social isolation. Just go about your normal life and take chloroquine. If you get sick, it will cure your COVID-19. So if you add all of those things up, I think, yeah, he can be accused of, uh, genocide for this, definitely. So this is one of maybe many things that we could point. Um, many of the crimes that Bolsonaro has committed in, during his time. Will this? Do you, do you have any faith or any idea that this will lead to any sort of actual prosecution or um, that he? I don't know that he could be impeached. That you know something could happen as far as him like being removed from office or even after he lo may potentially loses the next year in an election that he could be prosecuted for these crimes. I mean, is that possible? Do you well, think he's on trial in the Hague? I mean, they've opened a case against him in the international criminal court in the Hague, which is a court mm -hmm. that the U S government doesn't respect, even though it considers itself to be the great moral authority on human rights issues in the world. It doesn't respect the international criminal court. So he's on trial there 
for genocide against indigenous peoples mm. and ecocide. Um, sure. Now he's, uh, you know, impeachment seems to be off the table because in order for it, there's over 60 impeachment requests pending in Congress, but the new head of Congress is like his guy. So, mm-hmm. and he has, you know, his, he, he dealt out billions of dollars in pork to keep Congress on his side. So most of the people in Congress were like mercenaries and they got what they wanted. So it would take a lot of pressure to start an impeachment hearing against him, although pressure is building. I mean, his, his popularity is plummeting and the return of Lula really, um, really caused a drop in his support. You know, like Lula mm-hmm. is now the candidate with a low potential candidate because in Brazil, they only, you only announce candidates for the presidency one month before the election. They have a very oh, short yeah. election season, which I think is the way it should be done because sure. it doesn't cause like two years of hiding really important th- things like climate change from the headlines because sure. Joe Biden you know, cracked a fart in Oklahoma or something. And that's the headline news. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You, the way, the way that it, I forget this, and this is a common thing that I think us Americans do is we forget that other, the way that other uh, representative democracies function is often very different in very important ways. So like I forget, for instance, sometimes that in other countries, they they shorten the time that people can run for office as far as like announcing, you know, what, announcing that I'm running for office and this is the amount of time I can campaign and have media coverage mm-hmm. on that specific thing, which is very smart, just like you said, because in the U.S. it's like literally two years of nonstop coverage about who's going to be the Democratic presidential nominee, who's going to be the Republican nominee. And it's a fucking nightmare and it's exhausting and it does t- take away so much attention from other crucial issues that need to be highlighted in like the media. wars, you know, you don't, you go for two yeah. years without knowing what the U.S. is doing in terms of bombing other countries and stuff, really, unless you read alternative media. It's yeah. crazy. But another thing, like there's, a, there's a lot of things in Brazil, like there's this whole, I wrote this article for Fair recently, I don't know if you saw it, about New York Times coverage of the Operation Car Wash Lava Jato scandal for corruption. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. There's this whole media campaign framing Brazil as this loser country during the lead up to the coup in 2016 and framing it as the most corrupt country in the world and this and that. And um, actually, a lot of things that are considered crimes of corruption in Brazil that were, you know, uh, investigated in Operation Car Wash, which we now know was a totally weaponized and politicized uh, operation against the left, whatever. But a lot of these crimes in Brazil are totally legal in the U.S. You know, like most corporate campaign donations are illegal in Brazil. They've only started relaxing corporate campaign donations after the coup, but it's still much more limited than in the United States. And so like... Um, so, you know, some one of the things they have that's a, a big crime is like having a kind of campaign, uh, anonymous campaign fund that doesn't, that, you know, you don't know who donated to it, like a second, a second fund, they call it in Brazil. But in, in the U.S., these PACs all hide the, the donors behind them a lot. Yeah. And 
But okay, so you look at a city like Rio de Janeiro, it's the most corrupt city in Brazil. It's like the Chicago of Brazil. It's got this long rep. And one of the reasons Brazil has such a big reputation for corruption is because most journalists live in Rio de Janeiro, right? Um, as corrupt as Rio de Janeiro is, is how much organized crime there is there and all this stuff, there's still term limits for mayors and you have public bidding laws that are very strict. Whereas in Chicago, where I grew up, the mayor could award all of the contracts for road maintenance to his brother's asphalt servicing company in a no bid contract and run for, you know, and stay in office for like five terms or four terms, depending on if you're talking about daily father, or daily son, four or five terms in office, appointing relatives, you know, to different, for example, the, well, Daly Jr. was mayor. Uh, there was only one law firm that the city government recognized for dealing with zoning code changes, which you would have to file for if you wanted to do a extension on your house or any kind of construction in the city of Chicago. And it was his brother's law firm. You, that's illegal in Brazil. This kind of stuff is illegal. Uh, so, and you know, so I don't think it's as corrupt as the United States, anywhere near as corrupt as the United States in Brazil, frankly. I mean, we don't, we never started a war with Iraq through lying to the people about weapons of mass destruction that killed like, you know, 800,000 people or something. That's corrupt. Look at how much Halliburton made during the Iraq war, knowing that the vice president was the former director of the company. So mm -hmm. anyway, that's a, ta a bit of a tangent, but I, mm -hmm. I, I went off on it because of election laws. You know, another thing they do in Brazil, <clears throat> excuse me, is every candidate gets free television airtime, you know, during prime time, during the one month before the elections. And the amount of time you get is proportionate to the number of people, if it's a city, if it's a mayoral election, to the number of people your party has in city council. If it's a presidential election, the number of congressmen your party has. So if you're in a, one of these little fringe vanguard left parties that doesn't have any representation at all, you still get like 30 second TV commercial every night for a month. And mm -hmm. the, you know, the bigger parties get, might get three minutes, three and a half minutes. Uh, they set up kind of like coalitions, like think of how much money that saves on campaign, on campaign funding, oh, how, yeah. it, how it reduces the difference between rich and, and poor candidates because everyone gets this airtime, you know? Yeah. So there, I mean, there's, there's some things in not to mention like the electronic, uh, elect, you know, urns or whatever, you know, the computerized yeah. voting system, which enables them to get the results within two hours of the polls closing in a presidential election. It doesn't take like 20 years like Bush and Gore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I think just when, when you're saying this, it just highlights something. And you, you again, you talked about the New York Times in that piece at fair that you uh that you wrote which is and i read one of those pieces uh that new york times had published about lava jato and this corruption investigation and and the way it's framed it's just like i can definitely see this which is you just you just mentioned like some very obvious things that brazil is uh, there's obviously corruption in brazilian politics but to think that the u.s political system is somehow superior or or less 
susceptible to forms of corruption is really ridiculous. But the way that like New York Times will frame a lot of this stuff, and it's it's sometimes it's kind of subtle and sometimes it's not. But it's like, oh, Brazil was doing so good. And then, oh, no, they had some big corruption scandal and now they're they've fallen from grace. And there's some like it's just another sad story of a of a, a third world nation that's trying to raise itself up to the standards of the, the global north. And they've just again, they've fallen back down. It's almost like this. It's really patronizing way that Incredibly. it's framed. Yeah. Incredibly. Yeah. And it's just based and there's there's so many details that are left out of the reporting and out of the picture and that seems very purposeful i don't think it's just ignorance or just the no, blinders that we I, may I have i think they're it's... kind of like a a voice for the state department in latin america and have been for at least 50 years so they're just repeating state department propaganda yeah. really you know like they don't they don't mention as i mentioned in the article they don't mention the fact that this lava jato investigation was a joint investigation with the U.S. Department of Justice, and which was the much bigger partner in this, and this small yeah. group of public prosecutors from a provincial city, you know, like a Baltimore-sized city or something, uh, with the importance of Baltimore on the national scale, you know, like okay, so it's a it's a big city, it's pretty important, but it's not like Washington D.C. or New York or L.A. or something like that. It's it's a city. It's maybe like ninth biggest city in Brazil, Paraná. Uh, so obviously, if you see that partnership, you know one partner is stronger than the other partner. It's the U.S. Department of Justice with the FBI. And they collected, just from one company, Petrobras, in 2016, they collected $3.5 billion in fines in the U.S. Right. So this is a multi-billion dollar. The U.S. is making billions of dollars in fines off of this operation. But that's just not mentioned you know, for years in the New York Times and in other newspapers. So that, that's one thing. The other thing is that, you know, like when we had the subprime mortgage crisis in the U.S. in 2008, Goldman Sachs, which caused the was the one of the main causes in this. Instead of like throwing its board of directors in jail or its top executives in jail or something like that, they declared it too big to fail and lent it billions of dollars to make sure it could keep operating so that people wouldn't lose their jobs. And this is what Germany did with Siemens in this big scandal with Siemens and with Volkswagen. And that's pretty much standard practice when you have a company that's important for your economy involved in a corruption scandal. You do everything to make sure the, the company continues operating Well, you go after the corrupt businessmen in whatever. Um, in 2015, this judge, this U.S.-backed judge, Sergio Moro, canceled all of the contracts of Brazil's five largest engineering and construction companies and canceled a bunch of the, paralyzed a bunch of the operations from the state petroleum company, including the entire shipbuilding industry. And so together, a recent studies come out saying that this caused 4.3 million job losses. There was a study that came out in two, at the end of 2015 that was cited in BBC Brazil, but not BBC in English, you know, uh, saying that of the 3.2% uh, drop in GDP that Brazil suffered in 2015, 2.5% was directly caused by this paralyzation of industry by Lava Jato, 
by Operation Car Wash, Lava Jato. That wasn't put in the news at all. You know, like all you saw in the news was, oh, this is the worst crisis, economic crisis in Brazil in 50 years. Uh, the the Workers Party spent too much money on social spend, you know, social programs. Uh, and so now Brazil's broke. It's run out of money. And this was all during the lead up to this impeachment, you know, so it was all used against Dilma Rousseff. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that was just not put like you didn't see in the media that during the Workers' Party rule, the foreign reserves had been increased from $49 billion to $370 billion. At the time when the, the Anglo media was saying Brazil was broke, it had $370 billion in foreign reserves, around um, $300 billion in national reserves, $230 billion in outstanding loans to the United States. It had become the third biggest lender nation to the U.S. after China and Saudi Arabia. And, uh, you know, 20 billion in loans to the IMF. It had, it, had kept, it had gotten rid of all of its debt to the IMF and was now lending money to the IMF in a bid to get more votes and more power and open a space of counter hegemony for the developing world countries inside the IMF. And so it was sitting very comfortably financially, remembering that the, the, one of the core tenets of Keynesianism and of developmentalism, which is this kind of like um, third world Keynesianism, which is which has added elements of like trying to build up domestic markets and all this stuff. Um, one of the key tenets is that, you know, capitalism is a boom and bust cycle. And so the goal of uh, government is to take measures to minimize the booms and the busts. Okay, so the reason there was a reason they built up all of these foreign reserves and national reserves, it was to buffer against cyclical recessions, which have been happening in Brazil for five, 500 years, because it's a heavily, the economy is heavily reliant on like agricultural commodities and things like that, that have massive price fluctuations, mm-hmm. you know, uh, so, so they had set up an entire system to protect against the recession. But after the coup, Michelle Temer and the coup government just pretended that Brazil had run out of money, so they needed to do this deep austerity, this Washington consensus type stuff. Like they had to paralyze public health and education spending for 20 years. They had to, you know, cut funding to the university system. They had to raise the retirement age. All the time, Brazil sitting on all this money, which it still has. You know, like Bolsonaro started gutting the foreign reserves to keep the exchange rate from spinning out of control, but it still has, Brazil still has like over $300 billion in foreign reserves. So it's not mm. like, it's not broke. It, it's not like it can't afford to buy vaccines or something like that. It has money. Yeah. Why, what is the situation with the vaccines? Wasn't there something that was it Bolsonaro did, or there was some U.S. intervention in that? Yeah, um, all kinds of it's a shit show. The whole vaccine thing is a joke. You know, yeah. so Bolsonaro, we know that he had secret meetings that were facilitated by the British government with AstraZeneca before he announced he was running for president in 2018 with him and his sons. We don't know what they were talking about. That was revealed through FOIA requests. I guess it's called mm-hmm. F. OI or FOA in England. It's not FOIA, but it's okay. something similar, yep. you know. So that mm-hmm. was revealed by John uh, McAvoy, who's a great journalist. 
Uh, and then, uh, so we saw last year, Bolsonaro was constantly bad-mouthing this um, partnership between Instituto Butantan and Sao Paulo, which is this legendary public health institute that produces vaccines. And I mean, like, they invented poisonous snake antivenom in the 1930s. Mm. You know, they're like, a le- Teddy Roosevelt visited them in the, you know, mm. in the teens. They're legendary. Uh, wow. And they've been, they were working on developing a vaccine together with this Chinese company called Sinovac. And they have the capacity to manufacture like 1 million doses a day. So the entire time this was going on and they were doing phase two testing, phase three testing, Bolsonaro was ridiculing this vaccine, calling it the China vaccine and praising AstraZeneca. So he made a deal a much more expensive deal with AstraZeneca where he handed them something like $300 million for future millions of doses of future delivered vaccines before their phase three testing had completed with no money back guarantee if it didn't work. Whereas this whole operation with um, Butantan Institute cost like $70 million for the Sao Paulo state public health system. So he was like encouraging one and discouraging others. Um, Pfizer approached him. He refused to do a deal with Pfizer. Sputnik approached him. He refused to do a deal with Sputnik. So the governors started trying to do their own deals. Then the Supreme Court issued a ruling backing the governors up, saying that they could they could get their own copies of the vaccine. So when uh, Sinovac delivered the first like 8 million doses of vaccine to Sao Paulo state government, Bolsonaro seized it and said, oh, well, we're going to distribute this nationally. You know, you can't, you can't have one state getting all this vaccine and the other states don't. I mean, there's a justification for that argument, you know, but they, they announced they were going to distribute it and then they slowed everything down. You know, meanwhile, as they were saying all of these racist things right out of the Trump playbook about China in 2020, you know, uh, China got kind of like pissed off at them. And then Bolsonaro realized that he couldn't, he couldn't get this AstraZeneca vaccine without this, these important ingredients from China. And all of a sudden he's like, well, what's, you know, what's going on? China's like, China was being as helpful as it could with the state governments, but kind of like slowing down things with Bolsonaro a little bit, just to, point out yeah. some simple facts like first of all a we're your biggest trade partner <laughs> you know it's not the sure. united states like you shouldn't be making he had cabinet ministers making racist caricatures of china and the way a chinese accent sounds in portuguese on their social media accounts things like that and um repeating over and over again that the chinese created the uh covid19 and the lab all this crap. And so China got kind of pissed off. And so now we're in a really bad shape because in 2010 under Lula, okay, Brazil had one of the best vaccine programs in the world, right? One of the best, absolute best. And an example of that is that for the last 20 years, the there's been an average of less than a thousand people a year dying of the flu compared to like 30,000 in the U.S. because of their vaccine program. And so when one particularly bad type of flu came out in 2010, the the Brazilian health system distributed 80 million vaccines in 90 days. So it had this capacity for really good vaccine work. And Mm -hmm. 
And it's been kind of like gutted by Bolsonaro. He's like trying to sabotage vaccine plans. Even so, Brazil is still like the second best country in Latin America in terms of percentage of population that's received the vaccine, despite all of this. It's like, but it's still really low because Latin America is doing very poorly right now. So it's like six or 7% of the population last time I checked has been vaccinated already, which is really bad if you consider the death rate and all of this stuff. And it doesn't look like things are going to speed up much. In fact, to the contrary, um, Bolsonaro's health minister had promised to vaccinate like 40 million people during the month of March. And then he dropped that to 35 and then he dropped it to 28. And now it looks like it's going to be maybe 19 or something like that. It's one of the reasons he's been uh, forced to resign, you know? So, mm -hmm. but it doesn't, it doesn't look like, okay. The, so some States in the North, there's a coalition of governors from Northeastern Brazil, which Northeastern Brazil is much more left-wing than the rest of Brazil. So, Mm -hmm. Almost all the governors up there are from the Workers' Party or the Socialist Party uh, mm -hmm. or the Communist Party. And they've started dealing with um, Russia and China independently of the federal government. And it looks like they've just landed a deal for 37 million doses of Sputnik, you know, mm. which uh, as yeah. you started off asking about this Sputnik, which last year the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services sent an envoy to Brazil to convince Bolsonaro not to purchase Sputnik, mm, right? Which yeah. that in itself has resulted in thousands of deaths down here, for sure. Is there, is there a, you mentioned that there's obviously really excellent uh, um, uh, facilities or, or programs there regarding uh, the production of vaccines. Of course, uh, you just mentioned some of the reasons why it hasn't been effective under Bolsonaro, but is there at all within Brazilian culture, this sort of anti-vax thing? I, I think about the United States, one of the biggest, and we have our issues, of course, with distribution, and that's getting a significantly better under Biden, I will admit. Um, that being said, though, there's just millions of people that are just, they, they have access to it. They can get it. They fit in that age group where they can just go get it or they're frontline workers or whatever it is. And they just don't do it. They, they absolutely have the option and they refuse to get the COVID vaccine. Is that, is there a corollary or like a comparison to that in Brazil? We never used to have it, but because of Bolsonaro, it started up. So <sighs> Bolsonaro is like fomenting everything bad from Steve Bannon, basically. So okay. now we do have people who, you know, I mean, okay, there's a, there's a famous vaccine riot in 1906 or something uh, in Rio de Janeiro where the poor population felt like they were being used as guinea pigs, you know, yeah. and by Instituto yeah. Oswaldo Cruz, Fio Cruz, which is the, one of the two big vaccine, vaccine producing institutes in Brazil. It's the, it's actually the only one of only two uh, WHO designated centers of excellence for COVID-19. The other one being the CD in the Americas. The first is CDC and the second is this Field Cruz Institute. So they had problems with vaccines like in 1906. And since then, Brazil has done a very good job at like quelling any kind of anti-vaccine paranoia. But now Bolsonaro's fostering it again. You know, he's so so... You know, he's saying it's not going to be if the Workers Party was in charge, it would have been mandatory, you know, and uh, yeah. 
Bolsonaro is saying, well, it, let's just leave it as an option for people, for the weak, you know, who using all this machismo for the weak yeah. who feel like they need to take a vaccine. I'm not going to take one, you know, but if you want one, we'll make it available. <laughs> God. <laughs> he's a, I'm, I mean, uh, he's just, he's astounding how big of a piece of shit he really is. Like, I, I, yeah. I'm kind of blown away still. Like, I still like, and I'll, I'll, I'll look at stuff he's said or, you know, things he's done and it just, I can't, I don't know. I, I, I'm supposed to be interviewing you, but I just have to comment on just how appalling the way that he has talked about so many things. Like yeah. I watched that documentary, this was a year ago, um, Edge of Democracy. Uh -huh. um, and it's a very excellent Fantastic. documentary. It does a good, great job of explaining what happened um, leading up to the impeachment and ousting of uh, Duma Rousseff and then the imprisonment um, of, of Lula. Um, but with when Jair Bolsonaro at that time, when she was being impeached, he was a lawmaker and all of the various lawmakers were going up and doing their thing and casting their vote. He directly praised the during the military dictatorship. Dima Rousseff was a, a fighter, a rebel fighter during that period. She was captured and tortured. Correct. Yeah. yeah. And and. Bolsonaro praised her torturers yeah he dedicated while... his yeah i just I, it, it just it gave me chills and i remember and i had an interview a little while ago i want to mention this again um an interview with a journalist named vincent bevins who wrote a great book called the jakarta method and he was a foreign correspondent uh, uh in brazil and he had interviewed i think he starts his book off talking about how he had during this whole political crisis in brazil he interviewed bolsonaro and Bolsonaro said some really fucking retro, uh, like, like Cold War level stuff about communists. I can't remember what exactly he said. And uh, Vincent was like, I, I didn't want to include that in my article because it was so outlandish and fringe. It didn't even seem relevant to the article I was writing about the subject. And then he was hearkening back to that because he was just highlighting this sort of anti-communist ideology, this propaganda that had existed in Brazil and in so many other countries, um, and how Bolsonaro is kind of a product of that time because um, he's constantly hearkening back to the military dictatorship that lasted in Brazil for like a little over 20 years, uh, ending in, the I think, the 1980s. So I just have to comment. I mean, it's like when Trump was president, we were constantly being inundated with Trump tweets trump bullshit and you just kind of got used to the depravity of it um and i and there's like a normalization of that type of rhetoric and i i'm wondering if that's how you feel or how people in brazil feel about bolsonaro and his sort of the way that he postures and projects this machismo on everything he does and um yeah you know. he sounds he sounds like i mean like i've been living in brazil 25 years and I've known all kinds of people in the old days who like had an uncle who still liked the dictatorship or something like that, you know, yeah. maybe a retired police officer or something. I've been in conversations hearing people praise the dictatorship and things like that. And I always thought it was around maybe 15, 20% of the population. And, you know, there were some things that the dictatorship did that weren't that bad. I mean, at least one thing you could say about them is they weren't neoliberal. You know, they were like right-wing <laughs> yeah. Keynesians. 
you know? So mm. like some, some things they did were actually like, um, for example, their, their public housing program, you know, under, since the end of the dictatorship, governors and federal government are building these, like, they look kind of like Cabrini green style U S housing project buildings on the far outskirts of the, of the cities. So like, Mm -hmm. um, it would be the equivalent in the U S of like, you know, putting these projects in an X burb or something like really far where, um, and they just put them out there with nothing, you know, during the dictatorship, when the military dictatorship would build a public housing project on the periphery of a urban area, they would also build a factory nearby, uh, and a public school and a public hospital. So that there was this whole structure for people. And, Mm -hmm. you know, since then people have been just pushed out and like they get way out there and they realize there's no school even for their kids or something, you know? So there, there, there were some things, you know, like they did something like at one point they subsidized television purchases. So even today, TVs are super cheap. No, this was part of their social control project, you know, obviously. But people liked it, you know, being able to get a really cheap TV. At one point um, in the rural areas, they made it almost free to get a bicycle, for example, so that people could get around, you know, uh, and things like that. Some people remember fondly, just as like I read the biography of Mussolini once and Mussolini set up this summer camp program for all of the children in Italy where they'd go see a doctor and the doctor would decide if they were, if their um, physiognomy was better suited for mountain climate or a beach climate. And they divided all the kids into beach or mountain kids and they'd spend the whole okay. summer, you know, doing sports and stuff like that. Or And a lot of people from that generation really fondly remember that time and liked Mussolini because of that. So uh, I've talked with a lot of people who've said some nice things about the dictatorship, but the fact of the matter is I've also know a lot of people who are like tortured. And um, one of the things like under Paulo Maluf, the governor of Sao Paulo during the military dictatorship, he had the, the police categorized people into two groups, workers and bums. So if you're walking down the street, the police could stop you and ask to see your labor card to confer to confirm if you had a job or not. So I have a friend who moved black, you know, no coincidence, mm-hmm. who moved to Sao Paulo in like 1980 uh, from the rural northeast, from Maranhão, and he got he's a well-known musician now, Chion Carvalho. He got to Sao Paulo and like his first week he was staying at his aunt's house. He went out with a friend looking for a job, resume in hand, and was arrested, beaten up, and thrown in jail for two weeks because he was a bum. And you see this today. The military police still treat people like workers or bums. Like the first thing you say if you're ever stopped by the police is, I'm a worker. You know, I'm a worker. I have a job. I have, you know, I support my kids. This is what everyone says. Because they're afraid of being categorized as a bum. And, you know, Bolsonaro's like restored all of that. Regarding Ustra, I mean, the, the kinds of things they did to women were especially brutal. Hey, folks, this is future Patrick jumping in for a second. I wanted to provide something of a trigger warning here for you, the listeners. Uh, Brian's going to detail some of the torture of Dumont Rousseff and of women under the military dictatorship 
it only lasts about 40 to 50 seconds, but I just really wanted to jump in because when I heard it, it was, it's, it's a lot to take in. And so I think for people that are triggered by that, uh, for understandable reasons, uh, once this little part ends, jump ahead about 40 to 50 seconds and you'll skip a lot of those, uh, gruesome details. Now, Ustra, who, Colonel Brilliante Ustra, who Bolsonaro dedicated his vote to, um, he used to stick rats up women's vaginas, okay, and stuff like that. He was a real sleazebag. And they, they broke Dilma Rousseff's uterus. They beat her so bad. Uh, she was beaten all day long, every day for like 30 days. And she wasn't, she wasn't an actual armed fighter. This is another misnomer about her. She was, a, she was the accountant for a Trotskyist or Marxist, there was a Marxist-Leninist, not Trotskyist, Marxist-Leninist revolutionary group, V.A.R. Okay. Palmeiras. She was their accountant. Um, and so when she, uh, when the amnesty hearings were going on and they were doing testimony about torture and stuff, she was accused of lying because the military said that no woman could survive that much torture. And so this is, this is the level of disgustingness that Bolsonaro, you know, demonstrated on the day of her impeachment. You know, that was yeah. really low. Okay. And he's, he's yeah. a real, you know, I don't have to say it, but like on any issue, on any issue, you look at what Bolsonaro says about it. It's like the worst possible thing about any issue. <laughs> I mean, yeah. there, there's nothing he ever says that seems reasonable really even. So. Yeah. It's kind of a, it's remarkable in a certain kind of way yeah. that he can pull that off consistently. Um, yeah. Well, something I thought about this is that, you know, you had done, uh, it was a collaborative interview you did with uh, Dan Hunt um, and the late Michael Brooks. Uh, you had interviewed Lula da Silva. And this was, of course, after he had been released from prison. Um, I think this was a little over a year ago at this point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, was it, I thought it was a great interview. And something that Lula said was, you know, he really got to the fucking point, which was, you know, under Bolsonaro, we have like gone back to basically a form like being a colonial subject. I don't know exactly how he said it, but like through the sort of neoliberal uh, economic restructuring programs that he has, uh, you know, austerity measures and all the things that he has done as president, it's like the United States has a fuller grasp over the Brazilian society and economy. And that has basically subjected Brazil back into this kind of colonial subject position. So I want to, you know, this is what your documentary that you co-produce also addresses is the neoliberal economic policies under Bolsonaro. Um, but to me, when I think of neoliberalism, I think of, at least in the context of the relationship between say Brazil and the United States or other uh, uh, Northern countries is that it really a relationship that's been going on for a very, very long time um, where, you know, Brazil asserting any sort of autonomy or sovereignty economically or politically in the world is seen as a threat to U.S. hegemony. Um, and, uh, and that neoliberalism, at least in the context of Brazil, is a way for U.S. corporations and banks and the U.S. political system at large to just continue to exploit and plunder the resources of this country at the expense of not letting the Brazilian people have access to these resources themselves and benefiting from them. So would you find that the neoliberal, uh, the neoliberal restructuring, if you want to call it that of the Brazilian economy is a really just a form of neocolonialism? 
Yeah, it definitely is. That's what it's, it's used as an excuse to exercise neocolonialism. Definitely. Uh, remembering that like neocolonialism was pretty much invented in Brazil by the British. And then in the 1800s, like Brazil was the first mm. big country that they decided instead of invading, let's just try and take over their economy. And so they, mm. you know, um, <clears throat> but definitely, definitely. And, um, you know, like every time Brazil has ever had a president that's tried to exercise sovereignty, there's been a coup or a coup attempt, starting with Getulio Vargas. Now, there was a, he committed suicide during a coup attempt in 1952 or 1953, in which U.S. companies like Chevron were trying to privatize the newly created, they were trying to cancel his creation of a new state petroleum company, Petrobras, which was the reason why the U.S. got involved in the coup against Dilma Rousseff as well. You know, like, uh, the a few months after Brazil discovered these massive offshore petroleum reserves called the pre-salt in the pre-salt uh, layer offshore, which would, you know, if they're exploited, would propel Brazil into being one of the top five petroleum producers in the world. A few months later, the U.S. reestablished Southcom, the Southern Command of the Navy uh, that had been disbanded after World War II. You know, and mm -hmm. we now know Dilma Rousseff has even talked about it. Uh, I bring this up because in Vincent Bevan's book, he mentions a hallway conversation he had with Dilma the day she was finally impeached, in which she said off the cuff that she didn't think the U.S. was involved in her, mm -hmm. uh, the coup against her. But now she said that since subsequently said that in many interviews. So I found it odd that he would say that in the introduction of his book, but, right. but we know that, uh, the, you know, the, the, one of the, if, if you're going to analyze a coup, right, you have to follow the money who benefited the most. And if you look at one of the first actions after the coup in 2016 was that Michel Temer, first of all, he canceled Dilma Rousseff's decree, uh, earmarking all profits from petroleum, uh, from Petrobras Petroleum Company to the public health and education systems. He canceled that. And then he immediately began selling off oil reserves at below market rate, greatly below market rate, to uh, the big petroleum multinationals, many of which are from the United States, like ExxonMobil and Chevron. The third big petroleum multinational that benefited a lot was um, Shell, you know. But I, you know, I feel like Shell is not American, but it's part of this imperialist project, you know. Sure. So, and then, yeah. I mean, you can look sector by sector, all of these American companies that benefited, like Cargill, for example, Monsanto, uh, Shell, which is British, Dutch, whatever, Shell, Chevron. Exxon, what, I mean, even little things like one thing Lula did after he was elected was that he um, he issued an order transforming the federal government's computer networks over to Linux. And so one of the first mm. things that Michelle Temer did was he canceled that and brought back Microsoft and sent, you know, two hundred and thirty million dollars to Microsoft to transform the entire federal government system back to to its project. Wow. So, I mean. U.S. corporations just benefited so much from this process. It's ridiculous to act like 
it was just something that happened accidentally. And, you know, the, mm-hmm. if you, there are people who say, like, if you talk about U.S. influence in the coup, you're denying brilliant Brazilians agency, even though Franz Fanon in the 1950s very clearly defined the, these types of people in developing world business communities as uh, the uh, comprador bourgeoisie who make money off of turning over natural resources to the U.S. or in the case of Africa, you know, France or mm-hmm. England or whatever. So I don't know. I'm on a tangent now. But <laughs> basically, I just want to always emphasize when I talk about this stuff, always emphasize the U.S. role because it's something sure. that's just been like censored by omission in the in the American media for from yeah. from 2016 forwards, really. Okay. Yeah. Well, I have one more question. How much time do you have left? Whatever. It's okay. I'm, okay. You're good. I'm okay, just in cool. quarantine mode, you know, so. <laughs> All right. Okay, good. All right. Um, okay. So we have a presidential election in Brazil coming up next year, 2022. Uh, of course, I imagine Bolsonaro is going to run as he would. Um, and you mentioned some of the things involving Lula. I know in previous interviews we have discussed that whole situation you went more in depth into the lava jato uh fiasco or investigation um but since then we know lula was not only released from prison due to some leaks that came out showing exactly what was going on with that investigation how it was there to frame him and other members of the pt party such as uh president Rousseff. um but really this was just a way to get him out of the presidential election in 2018 because apparently, and this is something that's interesting to me at least, he served two terms as president. It's similar to the United States where you can serve, you know, two four-year terms as president. But because there was, a, I guess, a term he didn't serve, you know, he then, you know, uh, uh, Rousseff then became president after him. He then could run for president again, correct? Yeah, just the, like the U.S. Who was it in the U.S. who like, did that? It wasn't Grover yeah. Cleveland, was it? I can't uh, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. No, no, not I think. Roosevelt. Or, Oh. Served five consecutive terms, but there was a president right. in the 1800s who was like elected, lost right. re-election, came back later and got elected again. I think it was yeah, might have been Cleveland. Have, I don't know. Might have been. I can't remember. But um, so he so he wanted to run again because of what happened in uh, with yeah. the uh, impeachment because, because the um the the coup against Dilma Rousseff was undoing everything that they they'd done. Yeah. The PT party had right. done, so he was trying to. He was running for re-election. Sure, yeah, it makes sense. I understand that. Um, so this again, he was thrown in prison. Information came out showing what was really going on there. He was released, and then just very recently, I guess all the charges against him have been removed. Dropped. I guess there was a dropped. Yeah, reversed. Reversed. So that means he can run mm-hmm. next year for president. He's had his political okay. rights restored. And they're misreporting it in the Anglo media I saw on CNN mm-hmm. and everything. They're acting like it was just a technicality and that the Supreme Court is just transferring the investigations to another court. And that's not the case. Oh, all. What's okay. happened is all charges were thrown out because of illegal forum shopping. They transferred the case to a state and a city that had no relationship whatsoever to the crime. Because that local public prosecutor's office was already working in partnership with the U.S. Department of Justice. And the judge was working in partnership with 
U.S. DOJ and the FBI, we now know from the leaks, too. And so it was illegally forum shopped. That means that every single charge and every decision made by the judge was rendered um, illegal. And so the Supreme Court ruled that if another judge or another prosecutor's team would like to start from scratch a new corruption investigation against Lula, um, they could do it in the Brasilia district, you know, yeah. related to these charges of reverse and stuff like that. But the problem is I spent an hour on the phone with Lula's defense lawyer yesterday or the day before yesterday, you know, just chatting about random stuff because we, I did a little work for them and we're, you know, she's really cool. That's all I want to say. I got her on the Michael Brooks yeah. show once too. And she was okay. on democracy now this week and, we were just talking okay. and she said, like, one of the things is that because Sergio Moore was bizarrely allowed to rule over the investigation and then judge the case that he judged the investigation of, in a, you know, with no jury, this means that all of the evidence that he rejected in the pre-trial period, in the investigation period, and in the trial would have to be reanalyzed and ruled on admissibility or not. So just in this case with a triplex apartment in Lula, right? The one that resulted in him going to jail for like 582 days or something like that. Mm -hmm. Before the trial even began, Sergio Moro rejected every single defense witness. He rejected testimony from 73 defense witnesses who were all saying like Lula never owned the apartment. He never went to the apartment. We know this now. He never owned the apartment. I mean, that's so in order to open up a new investigation into Lula, it would take so much time to judge and rule on all of the evidence and stuff like that, that there's no way that they could get a conviction by next year's election season. It would just be impossible. They'd have to like vastly break all Brazilian records. And the fact is that the, the Intercept released a tiny portion of a very tiny portion of the leaked Telegram conversations. The hacker, Wagner Delgatti, gave um, Glenn Greenwald 57 gigabytes of conversations and then asked if he wanted more. And he said, no, he didn't want any more because they already had enough to do a bunch of articles about it. And of that 57 giga, Delgatti is complaining that they, they only released very selective things. So once the, the Supreme Court handed over the six terabytes of conversations to Lula's defense team, all of these bombs started dropping. Like on the day Lula was imprisoned, the Lava Jato task force leader called it a gift from the CIA, <laughs> you know, and things like this. Mm. Um, wow. And so there's, and the stuff that's been released since the defense team got it uh, in the, in the course of like filing all these motions to dismiss with evidence and this and that, um, it's implicated like three Supreme Court justices in illegal collaboration with the Lava Jato Task Force. So basically, I think there's no political will to reopen a case against Lula because it would open this huge can of worms now that would implicate sectors of the judiciary and other very powerful people in, in Brazilian political life. So that the idea that's being spread around, I'm sorry, this is a long answer because lawfare okay. is deliberately made as complicated as possible so that journalists can't explain it in the limited amount of space they have. And they end up just repeating allegations made by the prosecutors for the most part. 
like the Guardian did for years with Lava Jato and New York Times. But anyway, what this means is that uh, it would be almost, at this point, almost impossible for Lula to have his political rights taken away from him before next year's election. And he's currently polling 13 percentage points ahead of the nearest competitor, who is Bolsonaro, and also of the 10 possible candidates that were polled for next year's election. He has the lowest rejection rating, which is yeah. something else that's been misreported. Some reporters are saying, oh, he has a high rejection rating. Well, you could say it's high, but it's the lowest one. You know, so, yeah. yeah, and it's under you know it's under fifty yeah. percent, so forty four percent, probably lower than um, Biden's or Trump's rejection ratings in the last U.S. election. So yeah. that's a long you know long answer. Whatever I could go off on this lawfare stuff all day right. long. There's but... so many. <laughs> it's a it's an unfolding thing too. It's just like so much has just come out in the past year. Just one like bit after another and like you said you know bombs are dropping more information comes out so this is something and this may sound a bit paranoid on my part but i do want to address this because um i don't think we should take lightly the fact that bolsonaro is who he is what his family is you know as we mentioned the very very beginning of this his son eduardo was in washington dc with that so-called war council with other very close uh, allies of Trump, which of course it's it's at least believed, rightfully so, that they were very aware of what could or would happen the next day on the sixth, in which thousands of people stormed the Capitol building. I personally think it could have been a lot messier and worse, it, it, just due to the circumstances what we now know. Um, so you have again a very close member, I mean, of his son, a lawmaker in D.C with these people. So I'm curious this po cross pollination or this overlap between uh, like what how Bol Bolsonaro is like not only addressing the pandemic and other things um to with Trump with this election coming up next year. I mean I'm curious what your thoughts are about what potentially could happen if you have someone like Lula coming up like hey like I Lula could very well win. And it would be, I think, a very positive thing for, for Brazil for that to happen. But I think Bolsonaro, I, I don't see him just accepting the results of the election. I don't see him doing anything gracefully in that regard. So, I mean, what is your sense of that? I mean, obviously, it's a little far out from now to be making predictions or anything. But what are your concerns or ideas about that? Well, one of the main differences between Bolsonaro and Trump is that Bolsonaro has large sectors of the military on his side. Brazil gave amnesty mm -hmm. to all of the dictatorship actors, and a lot of the key figures from the dictatorship are now in Bolsonaro's government, like General Augusto Heleno, who was the architect of the Sit Soleil massacre in Haiti, in Port-au-Prince, during the Minusta occupation who has been, um, that minister occupation has been misrepresented by a handful of Aristide fanatics in the social media this, in this last week. It's a can of worms, but it's important to know that Lula removed Heleno from Port-au-Prince seven days after the um, massacre. He didn't have the power to fire him outright, but they kind of pushed him into early retirement after transferring him to a much less 
prestigious job. And Heleno has been a mortal enemy of Bolsonaro, of, of Lula ever since. Mm. And he's now in charge of 17 government agencies, including intelligence. Um, he's the chief of institutional security and probably the most powerful person in the Bolsonaro government. And so the military is now running 17 ministries for Bolsonaro. And there's thousands of former or current military officers in his government. There's actually more military in the Brazilian government now than there was during the last 10 years of the military dictatorship, which is absurd. Mm, you know, so the, the question is really this. Uh, we didn't, the, the results of a free and fair election in 2014 were not respected. Uh, the, the opposition immediately froze the government and throughout Dilma Rousseff illegally on a technicality. And then the 2018 election was not free and fair because we now know that completely illegally based on frivolous charges and an exception to the constitution opened up by the Supreme Court, essentially a state of exception ruling, reminiscent of Hitler years or whatever that Carl Schmitt used to write about, uh, that election wasn't free and fair. And not only was the leading candidate removed um, but his replacement was illegally smeared in the media by Sergio Moro, who leaked, he violated Brazilian election law by leaking incriminating plea bargain testimony uh, against Fernando Haddad that uh, insinuated that he was involved in some kind of corruption the week before the elections. And then after the elections, it came out that that plea bargain testimony had already been thrown out by the courts for being nonsense. And there's no mm -hmm. charges ever raised against that. So that election wasn't free and fair. So um, I'll just say one of my, one of the characteristics of the Brazilian workers party is that they've invested really heavily in the rule of law. A lot of the founders of the party were former armed guerrillas who fought, you know, uh, who kidnapped uh, ambassadors and things like that during the dictatorship, who fought against the dictatorship. And so when they decided to start this political party, they, they were like, we want to fight as hard as we can to uphold the rule of law. So all of the PT's chips are in this idea that there's going to be fair elections next year. And I personally mm -hmm. am a little bit worried viewing, living down here and seeing what's been happening for the last couple of years. I'm, as you mentioned, I'm a little bit worried that they aren't going to be that free and fair. And, um, you know, him, Bolsonaro calling on his followers for a Trump-style storming of the Capitol, that's like the least of the worries. Because unlike Trump, I mean, we see it looks like the big machine of intelligence and military and stuff was on the side of upholding the rule of law. Trump managed to corrupt the Capitol police who collaborated mm. in this. But in the case yeah. of Bolsonaro, he's got like the army, a navy, and air force on his side, and so in and some people in the army command are beginning to break with Bolsonaro and things like that. But none of them are mm -hmm. saying like we would endorse Workers Party. Like one of the most powerful generals, Santa Cruz, this week he's saying, "Well, we can't have Bolsonaro reelected, but we can't have Lula reelected either because they're both extremists," which is BS. Because Lula's like a, a social democrat; he's not a communist yeah. or anything. Yeah. Um, anyway, that's a short answer. This could go on. Sure, there's legitimate concerns. Yeah. Oh saying. yeah. All right. So you could just edit out that 
last part and just say there are legitimate concerns. <laughs> you just want to no, reduce no, no, this no, no, to like no. a two-minute soundbite yeah. news story. No, 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 no. No, I love the tangents. I love the rants. It's a, it's, this is a space for that. I love it. Um, yeah, I mean, that's really it, Brian. I just, I needed to get your insights and get, uh, kind of tap into what's going on down in, uh, in Brazil. So, All right. um, and I love following your work. Um, of course you talk about, you write for fair. Uh, you also, of course, write for, uh, Brazil wire. Um, and you are a correspondent for Telesur English. Um, what else do you do? You got a lot of shit going on. Those are like the three main ones, right? International are there any other things bon you got vivant. Going on? A what? International bon vivant. Bon vivant. Yeah, no, I'm just joking. <laughs> I wish. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've actually just been in this, you know, apartment for the last year and a half doing nothing. So I want to compliment no. you on your coronavirus hair. Thank you. I uh, coming back after I got back from Brazil last year. I I had a little bit of a I don't know what you want to call it. I I shaved my head. Yeah. I had long ass hair. I shaved it off, and now it's just growing right on back. So oh, it looks yeah, cool. Thank you. Looks cool. Yeah, it's kind of like wild looking, borderline uh, aliens from the past. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll take it. Thank you, Brian. <laughs> Well, again, thank you so much. And I'll be sure to link people to all your work. And of course, you're on Patreon as well. So I'll be linking to your Patreon. I think people I appreciate should it, support your, it's great talking your work. To you. I hope you can come back down to Brazil sometime after you get vaxxed, after you get chipped, yep. as Bolsonaro yeah, would I'm say. Yeah, I'm going to get chipped. They can keep track of me, whatever. As if you didn't own a um, cell phone. I know. It's... <laughs> I got to say, sorry, I just seeing like this pandemic really bring out the contrarianism in people and just the wacky fucking ideas that people that we at least thought were on the left have. It's just it's been incredible. I it's feel like they, they've deliberately worked to fragment the left using mm -hmm. the pandemic to fragment yeah. the left, especially the anti-war movement and the wellness movements. Yeah. You know, but yeah, that's another subject, yep. and I bet you have a better a guest to talk to about that subject than me. So I, I do cover thank that you a bit. For the opportunity to come on again. Yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you again, Brian, for your time.